Farm genomics and big data help feed cattle much more efficiently. And uh, as someone who owns cattle myself, I hope the answer is yes. Um, <laughs> uh, a native of Ghana, Dr. O'Kine's research has um, its interests focused on topics relevant to Canadian agriculture. He is currently, and has been for almost two years, the Vice President of Research at University of Lethbridge here. Um, he has completed his Bachelor of Science and Master of Science in Animal Science, as well as a PhD in Animal Nutrition and Digestive Physiology. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Erasmus O'Kine. Thank you, Bobby, for a very nice introduction. Um, I'm very, very excited to be here. Um, we've been here for nearly two years, my wife and I, and we came from the University of um, Alberta, where I was for nearly 30 years. Um, people ask me, why did you come to the University of Lethbridge? And my answer is very simple. It is the destination university, especially when you talk about agriculture. It's always amazed me. I did a lot of work on methane, you are hearing part of it today, with the federal research uh, scientists across, well, I'm across the river now, to the eastern side of here. I've done work with ADRI. It's always amazed me that most people don't realize the intensity of agriculture in the South. If you've had fries lately, most likely the potatoes were grown here. Take a look at the policy of water and water management. It's here. If you take a look at beef cattle and some dairy, it's here. Sugar beets, it's here. So we are very excited, I'm very excited to be part of the University of Leverage in collaboration with the, with the college, with the provincial government, the federal government, and ADRI to try very hard to put Southern Alberta back on the map. Today, a slight variation in terms of the topic uh, which Bobby mentioned, and is to expand on the fact that agriculture is changing. And I'd like to talk to you about some of the new ways by which we can remain profitable, meeting the economic, environmental, and societal challenges of sustainability. And offhand, I'll give thanks to my colleagues, Dr. John Bassar and Dr. Caroline Fitzsimmons, for their help in putting this presentation together. And the crust of the matter is this, feed efficiency. Why should we be efficient? One is an increasing global population, 8 billion by 2030, going to 9 billion by 2050. And the demand for meat is increasing and has increased by about 55%. And this is due to the fact that 3 billion new people, people are moving into the middle class and they demand more meat. The beef industry especially has to provide safe, affordable, nutritious, and environmentally sustainable beef products. 
And if we are very efficient, we can, in Alberta alone, increase profitability by about $10 million a year in terms of some of the new methods of production. For those who don't realize, the livestock industry has been trying to be efficient for a long time. My colleague, Graham Plasto, put this together that in, in 1972, it took about 840 pounds of barley to produce one pig of about 220 pounds. By 2007, it took around 700 pounds to produce a bigger animal. We call it feed efficiency. So it used to take about 3.8 pounds of barley to produce one pound of pork in 1972. And then in 2007, it took only 2.6 pounds of barley due to improvements in nutrition, due to the techniques that I'm going to talk to you about. If you take beef production, over the years 1977 to 2007, to produce the same amount of beef, it now takes 70% of the animals, which it used to take before. It now takes 81% of the feed, 88% of the water, and 67% of the land. These are the efficiencies that have been gained over the period of 1997 to 2007. And the resulting um, impact is about 16% decrease in the carbon footprint of beef. This particular graph shows the efficiencies we are talking about. If you take this to be the carbon footprint, a place like Brazil has a very large carbon footprint compared to the US and Canada. So we can definitely boast that we are able to produce the same amount of beef using less resources. And if you take milk, a gallon of milk produced uh, now compared to 1944 requires about 65% less water and about 90% less land. Generates less manure and has a smaller carbon footprint. How are we able to do this? Of course, the FAO, the Food and Agriculture Organization, states very clearly that the future is about an accelerated application of new technologies and new practices to sustainably increase agricultural productivity and profitability. And the three-legged stool are omics, big data, and nanotechnology. In the beef industry, we are not using a lot of nanotechnology, but we are using innovations such as omics. What do we mean by omics? It's the term which captures metagenomics, proteomics, genetics, metabolomics, and all describe what the microbes, the bacteria and stuff like that, in the rumen of the animal, what they do. In a typical cow, 
the digester in the first two stomachs, the rumen, it will be about 100 liters. Each drop has about 11 billion bacteria. I didn't say a liter, I said each drop. And it has 100 liters. So one drop has more people, has more bacteria than the world population, just one drop. And they are responsible for the production of milk and for the production of beef. We are now beginning to understand what they do using science, big science, omics. The other one is big data. There's a lot of data, precision farming, ability to identify various efficient animals using big data. And Alberta leads the way in terms of what I call residual feed intake, which I'll talk about later. Nanotechnology doesn't play a big role in the livestock production as we speak. So for example, we can take a sample from the animal, extract DNA, sequence it, do a lot of data manipulation, and begin to understand what the microbes are, what, how they are able to function to help in beef production. Science is big. We have the science in terms of how to achieve high marbling. We have the science to achieve how to select animals for less methane production, for less manure production, and we'll talk about it. And some of those things we do which translate to efficient production is in the lab, and we can do all kinds of things relative to how marbling is going to happen, how milk production is going to be increased. For example, this is one bull tested, and the name is Oman. Okay, this bull has now produced over 40,000 daughters. The semen is very pricey now. It's about $40 per unit and generates about $5 million per year for those who own him. This is old man, the characteristics. Produces more milk, or the, the heifers from old man produce more milk than the average hosting, produce more protein, and have less calving difficulty. 8% for the average, 3% for the daughters of old man. And it took about 10 years for us to identify old man in terms of the characteristics. Now there's a new one, Freddie. We, we've, we've been able to do the genetic, genetic testing to show the reliability of using the semen in four years. Others have taken only a year. So for old man, it took us 10 years for the rest, we can do it in a year to be able to identify how well the adult, his daughters are going to produce more milk, less dystocia, less illness, etc. It's due to genetics. So you can imagine that we can have over 10,000 or close to 100,000 carcasses. We harvest the data. We do all kinds of scans. We do all kinds of DNA. And we can predict dystocia or calving difficulty, marbling, how much fat is going to be in the offspring, 
revive, and on, and on, and on, and on. This young man, Brian, says that developing a heifer calf to up to two years of age will cost you about $1,200 out of pocket expense. Wouldn't it be important to make the right decision prior to winning? And that's what we are doing. So we've come a long way. But the three-legged stool in terms of economic sustainability, environmental sustainability, and the social license are still very important. The livestock as we know it produce greenhouse gases through methane. And methane is about 25 times more powerful than carbon dioxide in terms of greenhouse gas effect. Livestock producers always know that they, people accuse us of having animals which produce methane. Even though, if you take greenhouse gases, all the livestock in Alberta produce about 0.1% of the greenhouse gases as a percentage of what happens across Canada. So it's very small. But on individual levels, one cow can produce between 250 to 500 liters of methane per day. A lot of it through belching or eructation and only a small amount at the back end. But it represents a loss of energy for this particular animal. So what we've been doing is to try to reduce the amount of methane through various means. We, we try to vas, vas, um, vaccinate We've tried inhibitors of, of the methane bacteria. We feed ionophores, which are like antibiotics. You name it, we've tried everything. And as I said, in, in, if you take a greenhouse gases, the livestock in Alberta produce about 0.8 to 0.9 of Canada's emission. It's very, very small. So the big question is, if they produce methane, it's not good for the environment, we get accused of it all the time. The big question we have in terms of science is why don't we tackle feed intake? Because the largest cost for the producer is feed costs. It ranges from 25% of the total cost of production to around 40% of the feeder value. So, feed intake. And I don't know how many of you play golf. But golf, par is not is fine, right? But if you get a negative score, it's supposed to be good, right? Below par is good. In the beef industry, we have something called residual feed intake. And is the difference between what the animal is expected to eat to produce a pound of beef versus what it actually eats to produce the same pound of beef. Some of these steers and heifers and cows eat for fun, which is different from humans. Humans, we want to eat a lot and not gain any weight. We love that, we're into it. But we don't want our animals to eat and not gain weight. You see the difference? But some of them eat a lot to produce the same pound of beef versus others. 
That is where science comes in. The animals which eat less to produce the same amount of beef are the animals we want to select. And we can do it through science. This is in Lacombe, our agricultural research station. We have radio frequency tags on their ears. We know exactly how much they are eating because every second the computer below the weights, the feeding bunks, sends message. This is how much is left. And I know the cow which came here. Erasmus was here, Betty was here, and left. All this data is sent, and we can analyze these data to be able to calculate what these animals are eating. So I'll take a few more minutes here. Residual feed intake is the difference between what we expect the animal to eat versus what actually happens. The negative is good. So you see some of these steers were eating four, kilo, uh, four pounds less of feed per day compared to some of these um, other steers which were eating close to three pounds more per day. And these animals were gaining the same every day. So, for the same gain, some of them were charring down four pounds less compared to three pounds more. The difference is about seven pounds per day. So you, as a livestock producer, can decide, I want these calves in green. I do not want the ones in red. So if we can tell you the, the bull which produced these calves, you pay more for the bull. This is what we are doing in terms of procedural feeding intake. So 106 bulls were tested 3 pounds per day gain, and they ate 1.4 pounds less on the average. For the red ones, the same 3 pounds per day gain, but they ate 1.34 pounds more per day. That is what residual feed intake is doing. We've done so many of these that we can actually take a strand of their hair and figure out whether they are efficient or not efficient. We can do that. And we can do it early. So you make decisions as to whether you're going to keep it as a replacement pool or not. You can. And that relationship in science is related to how much work they do internally. Oxygen consumption. We all need oxygen you know, for our daily activities. Those with low residual feed intake have less oxygen consumption. They don't waste a lot of time doing unnecessary things. Okay? So there's a difference between the oxygen. The, the ones below par, which is efficient, are the ones which have less oxygen consumption versus the one which waste a lot of energy. It's also related to methane. The efficient ones produce less methane compared to the inefficient ones. So low oxygen, low methane production. And we can measure it. These steers and bulls have been trained 
to be able to put their head in a hood, which measures how much oxygen they are taking in and how much methane they are breathing out. And as you can see, they can do everything they want to do. This one is lying down. It's not as if they stand all time. They can, okay, they are fed in and they have all the movements that they want to do. We can also do it in the field. So this is again at Lacombe, and they come in to get some, some concentrate, some grain, and we have sensors to measure methane and CO2 in the field. And the science shows a lot more than just showing the picture. A lot is going on here in terms of science. But what does that mean? It means, and this is something in one of the feedlots close to this place. We had efficient sires, so we could actually genetically identify the bulls which fathered these calves, and whether they were efficient or not. In 246 days, using about the 600 uh, steers, we showed the difference in terms of feeding take of about $5,000 for this set of pens. And you can imagine that we have about 2 million cattle on feed at any given time. We are talking really big money. And I'm showing you this picture to show that in that particular feedlot per year, we're saving about 524 tons of barley just on the feed cost. And we now can have very high efficient line of bulls and they are being bred all of our better versus the ones which are not efficient. So breeding is now going on to produce the bulls which can be used to produce calves with less intake, less manure, less methane production. Yes, there are economic benefits, but also um, environmental benefits relative to methane and relative to manure. And society is beginning to say, wow, you are doing your part in terms of the environment, less methane and less manure. We don't have to worry so much about phosphorus or using manure as, um, to fertilize the land. But science is not enough. I love the science, and I've shown you it's very helpful moving forward. Environmentally, we are doing our part. Profitability can be had, but what about the societal part of it? The social license to allow us to produce, to continue doing what we do, is very important. We don't have to wait for legislation. We need to be able to have the trust of the public that our activities as producers are consistent with the values they have. That trusts and gives us the freedom to operate. We have the science, Erasmus says. We have the big data. 
We can prove environmentally and do all kinds of things. But the confidence to do what we do is very important. And it's about shared values. It's about communicating what we do to the general public and being free to show them exactly how, how well we treat our animals. So what does that mean? Most people don't care how much we know until they know how much we care. It's not mine. This is Theodore Roosevelt saying. We can accept all we want in terms of the science and the profits, but if we do not translate that into how much we care, it's not going to be very helpful. So, for societal balance, yes, we can have all kinds of knowledge, beliefs, sorry, um, beliefs, but in the end, the ethics by which we produce our animals, using the science, using the economics, become very, very important. So what's the future? Again, to the science, this is a project which is going on right now, trying to sequence about 100,000 animals in Alberta and in Canada. We take that strand of hair or a little piece of their uh, protein, sequence, genotype, and have a sense of the efficient production for marbling, for methane production, for manure, and all through what is called the Canadian Cattle Genome Project, which is headed at the University of Alberta. But we, at the University of Lethbridge, play a part. I said I was excited to be here, excited to be at um, the U of L. I believe that Alberta's future and prosperity, of course, requires the innovation, but also the integration of some of the uh, solutions that I've talked about to address what happens in the livestock industry for us to be economically, environmentally sustainable, but also with the social license to operate. We should farm smarter, bring, bringing together the science, the data, the research, and improve practices and outcomes. And for the University of Lethbridge, there is an intentional focus on the elements of adaptation science. What happens in terms of water? What's going to happen in terms of the crops we grow in southern Alberta? What are the types of practices to save water, to produce less methane, and to produce less manure, and to have efficient animals? That is what drives us at the, at the University of Lethbridge. We are leaders in the natural resource management and watershed. Those big landscape, uh, including water management, the functional environmental flows, and aquatic sciences. We can take a look in terms of drones at the landscape, breaking new ground to provide consistent and repeatable environmental monitoring. And of course, 
our relationship with the FNMI, the First Nations, Métis and Inuit community, in terms of practices in agriculture, is becoming stronger. We cannot do this without the co uh, collaborations with the college, with the provincial government, the federal government scientists, and of course, the Animal Disease um, Institute. This is the message to you, and I wish to thank you very much. Thanks again.